Listening to Real Talk SLP with your host, Felice Clark, the Deviling Speechy. This is a show to help speech pathologists navigate the SLP world with real life stories to celebrate therapy successes and how to persevere when failure comes knocking on your door. Hey there, Rockstar SLPs. This is Felice Clark, the Deviling Speechy. And we are going to be talking about the minimal pairs approach today. Now, if you are a school-based speech pathologist or private practice clinician who is working with that preschool to early elementary age, you know you're getting a lot of these kids that are walking through your door, the kids who have um, a lot of different error patterns and there's some intelligibility things going on. And so you're working with these students and trying to improve their speech intelligibility and help them to figure out those sound errors so that they can be understood by their peers and and the people in in their community. And, And so the thing that I have always you know, struggled with at times, especially being in the schools, is you're getting all these kids at once and you're not really sure which approach to do. And let me tell you, there's a lot of different approaches with speech sound disorders. So if you feel a little overwhelmed or you're kind of like, I don't know what to do next, it's understandable, right? It's really hard to sometimes navigate these waters with what approach to pick and then how to implement that approach. And then when things aren't necessarily going the way we want in therapy, troubleshooting all that, right? And so today I wanted to have Rebecca from Adventures and speech pathology come on the show and really break down a minimal pairs approach so you get a good idea about if this is the right approach what it is number 1 and then if it's a, if it's the right approach for your student or students on your caseload and some tips and tricks for how to implement a minimal pairs approach so it's always a joy to talk with Rebecca she always gives practical insight and real life examples so that you can really process some of the information in a way that you can envision your own student. So before we jump into that interview, I want to let you guys know about a free resource that you, that can be yours. It is a bubbles toy companion play therapy cheat sheet. So if you are already envisioning that spring needs to be here, um, where I live, I feel like spring is already coming. Um, And so I'm definitely getting into the spring vibe and bubbles are always um, a fun therapy tool and and toy to use with students and get outside during the spring and summer months. And so if you are wanting to have a cheat sheet that helps you, you know, jog your memory about what targets to use for grammar, what targets to use for WH questions and for vocabulary and your speech sounds that you can, targets that you can use and carrier phrases and just different ways to use bubbles so that you can reuse that toy over and over again. I want you to hit the link in the show notes and head to the blog post to get your free bubbles toy companion cheat sheet guide. You won't have any more brain fog when you are in a session trying to remember who's working on what and what targets you can use. So head over to the blog post um, after this interview with Rebecca. I can't wait for you to listen in. So let's head on over and chat with Rebecca now. 
Welcome, Rebecca, to the Real Talk SLP podcast. I'm excited to have you on the show to talk about the minimal pair approach. And yeah, so welcome to the show. Thanks. We've been talking about this for a long time, Felice. So it's like 2022. I'm here. Yeah. Let's go for it. (laughs) I know. What time is it technically in Australia? We had to kind of coordinate a little bit and... We had it. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's eight o'clock in the morning, so it was pretty good. I think we were originally it was going to be six or seven a.m., and I just wasn't sure if, like, I know I think about you know minimal pairs a lot, but I just don't know if my brain's that um, <laughs> that alert and firing. So, yes, I've, I've scheduled a couple. I, it's one o'clock my time, but I have scheduled a couple of podcast interviews seven o'clock my time, and I was like. What was I thinking? I can actually literally hear my three-year-old screaming out the front right now. So <laughs> <laughs> morning podcast, hey, you get you get the whole real life <laughs> of an SLP. Yeah, mom. it's true. <laughs> <laughs> That's so funny. Well, I'm I'm glad to be talking about the minimal minimal pairs approach because I think a lot of SLPs could benefit from using this approach with their students who have speech sound disorders. But before we get started, let's talk a little bit more about you as an SLP. You can just share whatever's on your heart, um, what you love, something fun. So as an SLP, as like a real life, like real person SLP, I, um, I can't roll my R's. My grammar is absolutely horrible and I don't know when to use commas. Um, I'm one of those people who's like always been scared of AAC and early intervention. I still scream when I have pop-up games in my room. I'm one of those people, you know, you hear me down the hall. So that's like me personality wise. But then I guess who I am professionally as an SLP, um, I work in private practice now uh, and I only see little ones with speech sound disorders. But um, prior to that, I've worked, I worked in the US for a few years in the schools and um, I worked in Samoa um, in a developing country and then I was uh, rural and remote in Australia. So I've kind of done like a little bit of everything to get to where I am right now, which is this private practice setting, working for myself and doing being the speech pathologist I want to be without rules and restrictions and policies and procedures, if that makes sense. Yes, I think being in private practice, you do get that freedom to find the area that you're passionate about and that you're that you're I don't want to say good at, but where you feel you're most confident. Yeah, totally. I feel and I always felt I was good at speech sound disorders. It came natural. Like, you know, when you first start out and you you test the waters, like I said, there were so many areas I was just like, this is not me. Like, I don't feel comfortable but treating speech, it just felt like my brain switched off and I could just go with it and be in the moment. So it's fun to do that full time. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. And you always have the best videos on Instagram. So at the end, we'll share how you can follow Rebecca um, to get more tips from her. Um, But so it sounds like you're a traveling, you're a little bit of a traveler and I was, and then, you know, when you have that, that, that life, (laughs) <laughs> that traveling adventurous life you lead. That's how actually adventures in speech pathology came up. I was, um, my husband, who's, um, was my boyfriend. We met in Samoa and he was an American peace corps. So I followed him to America and he came up with that name adventures in speech pathology. So I've got to give him credit for that adventurous <laughs> life 
I don't lead, yeah. I don't lead as much anymore. But <laughs> there's you know. adventures in speech pathology yeah. every day. But yeah, the daily adventures um, that we we encounter. Um, that's awesome. All right, so. Whenever I have a guest come on this show, I always have them share a song lyric or a song that reminds them of the topic. Do you have a song that reminds you about the minimal pairs approach? Yes. So um, my girl was a fronter. And, um, you know, when you're an SLP mom and your child, you know, you just know everything and you watch everything they do. She used to sing um, Let It Go from Frozen and she used to be really passionate and say, let it go, let it go. <laughs> and I had to really, you know, so I can't hear that song now without thinking about dough because I used to show her Play-Doh and say, Elsa doesn't, you know, have dough. She lets things go. So that song is my um, my minimal pairs anthem, I guess. Frozen. No, that's person. That's perfect. <laughs> uh, we we are we sing "Let It Go" in our house as well, and Muwana, and yeah. Um, yeah, and it makes. I love that example because minimal pairs really is about showing the the contrast of sounds, and when you don't use the correct one, the message can often get. Uh, jumbled so to speak and you don't know what they're really talking about because you're like let it do <laughs> yeah it's all in the brain that's how I kind of think about minimal pairs it's like the brain and I'm always tapping my head when I'm talking to parents you know we're trying to make the change up you know up here that they have to really hear themselves and and be like I don't make sense like you can't let it do. Like Elsa doesn't do that she lets it go and so you know it's not just about the mouth you know, for me, that's how I explain it to parents. So yeah, that's, um, that's like the biggest, it's a big concept, I think. And once you kind of really get that, I feel like minimal pairs just flows, um, when you, when you teach it with your kids. Totally. And I think a lot of SLPs struggle when it comes to speech sound disorders, knowing which approach to use with the student because we're either learning a lot of different approaches in grad school and then we get out into the real world and maybe, you know, for private practice clinicians, maybe they're only seeing speech sound disorder kids, but then in the schools we're seeing all sorts of kids. And so, and then they sit down and they have a goal that says K and G, but you have no background about, you know, why that goal was written and they just start doing therapy. So it's really hard to know which approach to do with a student and how to feel confident doing it as well when you've got when you're juggling all these approaches. So I would love to know, like, what is your first tip for figuring out if a minimal pairs approach is the way to go with a child? Well, first of all, these are the kids that have they usually have these patterns and we used to call them phonological processes, but we've changed that terminology. So usually when I see a child and they have a pattern, you know, and I'm like, they're fronting, they're stopping, they're gliding. I immediately consider that approach. Like it's just, it's up in my head because I hear those patterns. And, you know, usually these kids, they're three to six years of age and sometimes they fall through the gaps and you see them in, in kindy and year one. But we're really talking about these these little kids. Um, and it's the approach that I usually consider the most like it's the it's if I had like two or three approaches in my head minimal pairs is always up there because you can use it for children with mild to severe phonological impairments so it really covers such a wide range where another 
approach, like multiple oppositions, that's really suitable for your severe and profound kids and, you know, cycles as well as for those highly unintelligible kids. So in my head, I feel like minimal pairs covers such a wide range of children in terms of severity. Um, Yeah, so that's like the, that's where I kind of go for. Mm -hmm. I'm also a really big fan of trialing and testing things out in your assessment or your evaluation. So I'll I'll do like a quick little minimal pair um, activity. Like I might just pull out T and key, for example, you know, and I'll say, hey, do you got, you know, do you know, I, I had this yesterday. I said, does your mum drink tea? And the little one said, yeah. And I said, and, you know, does your mum use this for her car? And it was a key. And she said, yeah. And I said, well, can you point to the one that I'm saying? You know, it's kind of like minimal pairs in two minutes. And and he could, he could do it. And then I was like, now it's your turn. What's this one? And when he looked at key and he said tea, um, and I was like, just wait, a tea, you can't drive a car with tea. And he giggled and he thought it was really funny. <laughs> and that to me was like a thumbs up that this could be a child who is suitable because they got it, that it didn't make sense. They can perceive the difference and hear the difference with the cards. Um, and so that's that's how I kind of that's how I kind of move forward a little bit with minimal pairs. It's a little bit of a trial and an error. Otherwise, yeah, you can get kids and when you say, that's not a that's not a key, that's a T, and they get mad and they go, oh, I can't do it, or that's, I said that, and they can get, re- you know, when I see those reactions, it makes me just think, you know, that if I do use this approach, I'm going to have to approach it with the child differently. Does that make sense? No, it does. I've had kids where then they, or they get insecure because they can't physically produce a sound yet. Yes. And then they, they get, so then I tend to go towards a cycles approach or something that's like where we can do auditory bombardment and do receptive, you know, to ease into taking the risks. But I love what you said about your first tip was that it's, you can serve mild to severe kids. So it's a great approach when you're even just trying out you know, which phonological approach you want to do with students. And then you said something else. Um, Oh, that just, it doesn't take, didn't, it doesn't take that long to trial and see if this approach will work. Yeah. I always do that because otherwise, you know, you could finish your evaluation and be like, I'm going to do minimal pairs. And then you have all your cards, you have everything set up. And then when you do that first thing and it just, it falls apart, right? So I just mm-hmm. think it's nice to give things a little trial or in your head just have those options and flexibility. Um, the other thing to know, though, is that the minimal pairs approach has the most, like by far, by far, the most um, journal articles on it. Oh, okay. There are so many out there when you compare it to the other approaches, um, you know, like cycles, like multiple oppositions um, and things like that. Um, complexity approach and, you know, complexity, uh, selecting complex targets like that's um, complexity approach. There is so much more in minimal pairs. So it's got a lot of research behind it and a lot of different ways that people have interpreted how to um, implement it. Well, and I have found that as a school-based SLP, I've taken some courses and stuff on the complexity approach and I love the concept of it. But then if that's not the only area that you're specializing in, it feels very 
time consuming to do. And, and if you don't have a ton of kids with that area, you're only, you're like practicing and then you have to go try again whenever the next kid comes. Whereas with minimal pairs, you can do some assessment and jump into therapy. I think a little bit more efficiently and get started on making progress. And, and I'm not knocking the complexity approach. I'm just saying some approaches it takes, there's a little bit more of a learning curve where minimal pairs you do you know it's about the kids, Felice? I honestly think you've sometimes you've got in your head this is the best approach for you, like this is, but it does not suit the child. Like for a complexity approach, you've got to have a little bit of resilience, you mm-hmm. know, because it's hard. Mm-hmm. You're teaching them something hard. But with minimal pairs, you could choose comp you could choose cluster reduction over right. fronting or stopping. You could choose a complex target so you can integrate it in. But look, so many times I have been like 100% sold that minimal pairs would be the best for this child and it does not suit their personality um, or they just don't like that feedback. And so that's where it's like, okay, backup plan. Or maybe I start with multiple oppositions and the backup plan is minimal pairs because it's less contrast. So I think flexibility is kind of the key when you treat kids with speech. You can't just go in with one plan. I love that. Yeah. Yeah. Trying to have it back. So when, what is your, another tip or strategy that has, that has helped you with navigating minimal pair therapy um, and knowing if this is the way to go with a student? I think um, what I like to do is I, it's taking the child's perspective Minimal pairs, it can be a bit confronting, right? Because we know that the child is going to say T, right? When they look at the key card, like we know they're going to say it. And so in our head, we know that, you know, this is the pattern fronting and their sounds at the front, uh, their sounds at the back are going to the sounds at the front. So we understand this context. We get what's going on. I feel like if you just jump straight into minimal pairs and start contrasting and you don't give context for this rule and you don't make this rule meaningful, like what the point is that we're doing, I feel like that's where it's hard for the kid because everyone knows how to drill and copy a speech pathologist, you know, and just say a word one after the other. Your brain doesn't have to switch on as much, but for minimal pairs, your brain has to be on because you have to be listening yeah aware of what you're saying and thinking about the meaning so um I love I love 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 my metaphors I think my favorite one ever is um for final consonant deletion and you teach this idea just this concept that just like animals have tails so do some words and you know wouldn't animals look funny with no tails and you know there are cute little toys where you can snap them in half or you could cut a picture of an animal in half and kids are like that looks really really weird like animals look so (laughs) weird without their tails so you get this concept and they understand it and then you relate it well that's what it sounds like when you don't say the tail or the last sound on your words like when you look at mouse you say Mao, that's what you're saying. And you can see the little gears, you know, turning in their head. And sometimes, Felice, it's a literal light bulb moment. And I'm talking like a click. And it's like they have just in their head gone, oh, okay. And they just apply this rule. Wow. So yeah. it's, 
Yeah, it's, it, I've, I've seen kids of three sessions for fronting when in the first session the child couldn't even say K or G, so I had to work on stimulability in session one. And by session three, conversation with K and G is a light bulb moment. So I think you really have to take the time to get kids to understand what you're doing. So I like, you know, I use little stories or metaphors. If the child has a special interest in something, I'll try to use whatever their special interest is and just make up something off the top of my head to make it relatable so that they get what we're doing. So I think you've got a scaffold. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and it yeah. it's a language based, you know, approach. We're teaching them the phoneme differences and listening for those. So it's definitely needed, especially like the visual support or the the relatable mm. context so that they can understand it in a different way because hearing the words hasn't really helped change the pattern, you know, in yeah. conversation. So we got to try something different. So I love all those suggestions. Um and I do think that we can get in that that I don't want to say a rut, but that, that wanting to just drill, 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 and not taking the time because we're just, I think as school SLPs, we want to get progress as fast as we can. And I'm sure private practice SLPs are like, we want that too. Um, Or we only see them for 30 minutes in a group. So we're like, drill, 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 instead of remembering that. Exactly. But, you know, like I said, I've had kids literally have three sessions and especially with gliding L to W, I've had a lot. I had a little girl last year. It is amazing, like three sessions for a child who was not stimulable for K and G and they're in conversation. Like that's, yeah, that's amazing. It's amazing. amazing. It doesn't happen every time. No, it doesn't. It's amazing that you can get that just because you've helped them understand that rule. And can I read a quote? I've actually got a quote sure. from um, a book because I really like it. Um, it's uh, Dr. Lynn Williams, who is such a, a an icon and a guru for me. Um, she also suggests, um, you know, familiarising the rule being trained. And she says, since rules are abstract, um, like those, you know, patterns, and they involve complex metalinguistic abilities to talk about them, Intervention must make rules concrete so they're meaningful and learnable to the child. So that's why she does suggest this idea of, um, you know, familiarising this rule and I like to use metaphors, but you can use, you know, things like short and long for stopping and things Mm -hmm. like that. It's just finding a way to make this abstract thing, you know, fronting or cluster reduction meaningful to the child so that they actually get what we're doing. No, that totally. Like we don't talk about that with kids, you know. Well, and I like the way you simplify it too for the kids and make it um, something kind of funny, you know, for them to relate to, and then they think it's a funny thing, you know. They kids like to laugh and have do fun. You know, they do, and it, it's not so personal. You know, I think that's what I like about it too. You know, like with cluster reduction, we might have like sound buddies and I'll get some, um, you know, blue tack or something sticky and I'll stick two figurines together or something like that. And if they, you know, reduce one of their sounds, they take it away. And I was like, oh, no, we lost our sound buddy. You know, they've got to stick together. <laughs> or you use cranes to connect. Just something like that. And then it's just... It's not kind of like that personal attack of like, I'm not doing it. It's like, they're lost. Let's bring them back together by putting those two sounds together. So I think it's just, um, 
it, 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 yeah, it kind of takes that personalization out of it. Like they can't do it. And it makes it like, I can put my sound buddy on. I know how to do that. Or I can use my back sound. I know how to do that. So right. that's why I love that. So that's why that's my tip. Make it learning, learnable, relatable, meaningful, and those metaphors and stories and things like that. Um, it's a really great way to do it. And then that's a cue you carry on for the rest of therapy. You know, it's a little cue you can use. And I like how you can, yeah. uh, how you said to even interchange it into their special interests or things that they're motivated mm-hmm. by. Um, sometimes it makes you have to get a little creative, but uh, usually I'd say dinosaurs. I don't know, Peppa the pig. I don't know what else. Those yeah, types of oh, fro- like for me, it's fro- Frozen's a big one. Oh, right. um, actually, for a little girl who was a fronter, we really had to work on stimulability first, and that's where I think a lot of SLPs fall through. They think, well, they can't say K, and you go through all your elicitation techniques and tips, but then you just carry on using an articulation approach and think, well, I've got to get it in the middle of the words and at the end of words and in phrases and in sentences where, you know. Um, you can still use minimal pairs. You just need to work on getting that sound. But um, this little girl, she, every tip I tried, it just wouldn't work for her. And she had on a frozen jumper, a, a sweater. You guys call them sweaters. Um, she had on a frozen sweater. And I said, I'm going to be Elsa. I'm going to freeze your chin. And you've got to keep you know, like your mouth open. <laughs> and I froze, you know, I had my hand out and I'm like, freeze. And she had her mouth open and I said, now say, Kh. And she could do it like just like that. So it was just a metaphor I made up off the top of my head because she had, you know, Elsa on. And that thing, it just made sense for her where every other trick and tip didn't. So there is such power in making things relatable and meaningful for a child, I think, when um, teaching speech sound disorders. And one cue, one trick does not work for every child. It's not you can't just go in with one thing. Um, yeah, no, that's a good reminder that we have to look for, we have to have, that's why we always have to have a big toolbox of tricks Yes, because every kid (laughs) is different. Um, and that's, (laughs) and that's a good thing. And also kind of sometimes the stressful part of our job when we're like, they're not getting it. So I love those examples of how to elicit certain sounds, especially when they're not getting it. And so what would be your final tip? maybe in regards to even eliciting sounds with a minimal pairs approach when a student isn't necessarily getting the sound production, like what would you say to an SLP who's like, I've tried everything or um, I don't know how to elicit that sound. Like what would be some suggestions for helping them with navigating that? I think What's important to know and what a lot of people don't know is that you can actually still do the minimal pairs approach if the child is not stimulable for a sound. There are actually two um, two approaches with slight tweaks to it. So one is, you know, it's called the meaningful minimal pairs approach. It's that real straightforward one that we kind of know. But then there's um, a perception production approach um, and well, – this is where it kind of starts off and you feel like it's articulation, right? You have to figure out your cues. Um, I do a lot of making sure that the child can perceive and really hear the difference because that can help work on that stimulability as well. So I would spend more time sorting and categorizing. Just This is to lead up to 
um, you know, our tips and our tricks for how to elicit the sound. Um, it's amazing how many children cannot hear the difference between um, pairs or contrasts like T and key. And if in my head, it's like, well, if they can't hear the difference, you know, perceive it and really think about the difference between it, how are they going to be able to say it? Um, so then I try not to do too much stuff in isolation if I can. Um, I like to move on to, I, I like to play around with words, to be honest, Felice. Like <laughs> I'll look at my minimal pairs set of words and I really think about vowels that can facilitate the sound. So, you know, with K, um, I might, if with fronting, I might try final position first. You know, that mm-hmm. can be a lot easier developmentally for kids. So I might see if there are words in final position and I might choose targets with a back vowel um, because the tongue has to go back for curse, so that idea mm. of facilitating. Um, I would avoid words initially, um, you know, really look at my words. Like if there's a word like gate, well, I'd avoid that because there's a, you know, the T in there. It's just going to influence and I know they're going to say it wrong. So I I kind of pick a, a couple of words, really, really good words, but they're words that are in my minimal pairs set, if that makes sense. So I really kind of like look through, you know, mm-hmm. my, um, my minimal pairs and I just would really try, like I said at the start, that little articulation approach where you use every single cue, you really make sure they can hear the difference. And once they're accurate with, with that one word, um, I might just work on that one pair um, mm-hmm. for a, a, a session like I had a little one with gliding um, and we had to do a whole session on L you know really getting that tongue up and once she got it I introduced light and white and that was the those were the only two words we practiced and she got so good at light in one session that it generalized and it carried over and she kind of could apply how to you know do that tongue up with all the other words but she was getting real high success so with that, word, with that think, word pair, she was getting yeah, success. Yeah, totally. Because um, I know what it's like. You know, I used to think minimal pairs, you had to have your set of words and you had to have your set of cards and they'd always be the ones you know they'd get wrong. But, you you know, you kind of, you kind of just did it anyway. But now I guess the mentality that I've taken and because I use this approach so much I know the basic recipe and I know those the, like the ingredients that you need to implement minimal pairs correctly. So, you know, um, making sure that they can hear the difference, um, being aware of that stimulability, really, really knowing the steps and the recommended intensity. Like I try to get a hundred correct productions, you know, in my session, see the child at least weekly. Um, but I think, if you don't know all those little elements, I think it's hard to be very, very successful. It's like looking at a picture on like Pinterest of like an amazing meal and go, I can make that. And then you try it and it doesn't taste as good, you know, mm-hmm. it's because well, you haven't followed the recipe. If you've done that recipe 10 times, then you can start to tweak it and you kind of know what to add, what to take away, what to spend you know, you can add more Mm -hmm. salt or you need less butter or something like that because you've got a really, really good understanding of the basic 
you know, recipe. So in my head, I just think of minimal pairs as a recipe. You need certain elements. Otherwise, I just feel like you're setting yourself up for failure. And so if you don't understand the approach and you can't, you know, explain to me what those are, I just feel like that's where you should just take the time to learn it because kids can move through therapy so quickly. Like I said, three sessions, it's amazing. No, I was just going to say, yeah. And then once you start, you start learning the long-term goal, it's going to make things so much easier for you later on. So much easier. Um, yeah, Yeah, that's how I think of it. Like a recipe. Yeah. You need it like a, think of it like a recipe and know those core ingredients. So for me, that feedback is so important. Like that doesn't make sense. And you know, all those things, I get so many wrinkles after I do (laughs) therapy because I've got those face, you know, that face of what, what did you say? Um, you know, and it really stop. it makes the child stop and think. And I can't think of many other therapy approaches that really encourages the child to stop and to think about what they've said and if it makes sense. And if you want me to understand you, you need to do something to fix this breakdown. Right. And, you know, they, they, they can do it. So that's why I, I think minimal pairs is amazing. I, I do like minimal pairs too, because it also incorporates that phonological awareness piece of how sounds are different and how we have to move our mouths differently. Yeah. Rhyming. And words rhyme. So kids are hearing all these rhyming words. So it's great for that, you know, that sound awareness and building that up. Yeah. I can't speak more highly of it to be honest, but um, I think it does so much. (laughs) Yeah. You're you're one of the pros in this yeah, area. Do, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And like I said, it's the approach I, I use the most in my therapy setting. So um yeah, I'm a big fan of it. Cool. Well, I would just to recap your last tip. So you said that if a child's struggling with um producing the sound, you kind of will go back to can they hear the difference? And so you're gonna use your cards the picture cards like T and key, and then you're not going to treat that sound in isolation. You're going to use the cards or the speech cards. Yeah. I like to pick the word. Yeah. I mean, sometimes I might sometimes if they really, really need it, but I really like to just use the words. And in that um, second approach, perception production approach, you do, you use your minimal pair cards. You just don't use the the other pair. You just focus on like if it's fronting, like the five K words. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay, cool. And then you yeah. said sometimes even looking for co-articulation, so looking at the vowels, if it's a back vowel that you could try pairing that. So I just, yeah, I just wanted to recap some of those tips so that you guys can um, reprocess that because there's a lot of good nuggets there. So going back to hearing the difference, so perception, and then using vowels that could help facilitate the tongue to get to the position that they need. And then it's okay to stay using just one pair if the child's having success with that and finding ways to drill that and work on those before that, that could actually help get the carryover that you're looking for. So yeah. And then you add more in and you make it harder. That's, that's how we do it. (laughs) (laughs) I love it. Flexibility. Yes. It's it's very flexible and reading the child in the moment too. So um, if you're still kind of going, well, Felice, I don't, 
No, you know, I still feel confused about the minimal pairs approach. Um, Rebecca has a whole minimal pairs handout resource and a minimal pairs toolkit. So before we wrap up the interview, um, I'll have you, Rebecca, share a little bit about it. And we will link to those resources in the show notes so that you can get your hands on it if you need it. Yeah. So the handbook is... Uh, in my head, it's like this comprehensive intervention guide. It's like, I don't know what I'm doing. I don't understand it. I've read the textbooks. It's all in SLP jargon. So I've basically broke it down. I think it's over 150 pages with charts, with data forms, with a whole therapy session of me doing minimal pairs. So that's the resource you get if you just want to know how to deliver minimal pairs. And then the toolkit are the actual cards, um, the metaphors, the stories. It's the resources that you use to actually implement minimal pairs, if that makes sense. So one's yes, for knowing how to do it and one's for actually doing it in very simple terms. Yeah. Yes. So if you have some minimal pair tool tools already, you probably want to get the handbook just for implementation to build your confidence. And then if you're kind of like, I know what to do, but I would love to have more materials. Um, Rebecca has a lot of great uh, minimal pair materials that I have used. Um, The stories are really cute too, and the visuals. And it kind of just takes the thinking out of planning. So you already start the session with some cues, with words, with a place to start so that you don't feel like you have to come up with everything on the spot. And then you're able to adapt, like you said, and be flexible with the student in front of you. So, yeah. So awesome. Well, Rebecca, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. Uh, It's always great talking to you. And why don't you let everyone know where they can connect with you on social media? And then we will, we'll, we'll head out from this interview. Um, so my handle on Instagram is Adventures in Speech Pathology. Um, I try to hop on and do stories and I share hopefully once a week, like now that I'm back in therapy, um, therapy videos once a week. Um, so if you look through my reels or my um, Instagram um, highlight videos, you'll see examples of minimal pairs and therapy just so you can wrap your head around it. So that's probably the best place to see what I do see what speech therapy in private practice in Australia is like and just what it's like working with um, the speech sound disorder caseload full-time. Yeah, awesome. All right, everyone, uh, I will see, or I always say this, I will see you next week and I really won't. You will hear me next week. (laughs) And don't forget to be the SLP that every kid wants to see. Stay inspired and we'll talk soon. All right, bye. Bye. Uh